Welcome to episode 20 of the Tarsens Diplomat, the satirical diplomatic thriller set at the Canadian mission in Brussels. As this podcast goes on the internet, we are about a month away from the real-life visit by Prime Minister Trudeau to Brussels. Hopefully the CEDA trade deal negotiations turn out better for our friends at the Canadian mission in Brussels than the Can Do Canada mission did for McGregor, or Julianne, for that matter. Thanks to all of you who left reviews on iTunes and Amazon.ca. If you haven't, you know what to do. And now, here is the author, Keith Halliday, reading episode 20. The Tarsan's Diplomat, Chapter 23, The Weaker Link. With Culloden gone, Violet and I relaxed and ordered creme brulee for dessert. Violet tapped her caramelized crust pensively. You know, McGregor, she said. We could follow Ian Culloden for years and not find anything out. Unless he gives us his secret memory stick, or sits down behind us and starts blabbing about breaking into Julian's flat, all we're going to have is a long list of slightly dodgy people he's had lunch with. This was indeed a puzzler. Before I could reply, however, the bell on the restaurant door jangled, and Violet kicked me under the table. Jesus, it's Sleeth and the boys, she hissed, leaning her head on her left hand and lowering her shoulder to hide her face. To my astonishment, Len Sleeth from West Can Energy and Dirk Beddo and Craig Ravinsky from Ottawa sat down at the table Culloden and his friends had just vacated. Ravinsky put down a copy of Lonely Planet on the table. Lonely Planet has blown the cover of another good restaurant, muttered Violet in annoyance. Now this place will be full of Canadians with maple leaves on their backpacks. Fortunately for us, the German bankers had just ordered another round and were providing excellent cover. They must have had a profitable morning, talking some Brussels agency into bending the new Basel banking regulations in their favor, I thought. Violet leaned forward. If Culloden is too tough for us, how about giving Sleeth more attention? Yes, I said. If we found out what West Can Energy was doing in Brussels, that might give us leverage. The question was how to get information on Sleeth. Oil executives are not known for being easy marks, and he might be just as difficult to track as Culloden. We need someone easier, I said. More in our league. Bush league, preferably, replied Violet. We chewed in silence, and suddenly the idea hit us both at the same time. The Canadian mission, we exclaimed in unison. I love it, said Violet. It's brilliant, McGregor. If Sleeth is too wily to attack head-on, we follow some weak-link Canadian official who takes us right to him. And when we find out all the juicy details, we use them as leverage to get the PMO to make real police reopen Julian's investigation. Violet and I planned what to do next, as our German banking friends kept up the boozy cover routine beside us. Violet and I were still plotting when Sleeth and the boys left 45 minutes later, much to the disgust of our waiter, who told us that eating lunch in under an hour was too American. Lefranc and Camille liked the plan Violet and I had come up with. That night, we put it into operation. At about 10 p.m., we crammed ourselves into Camille's old Citroën, I could feel each cobblestone as we rattled our way to a back street near Parc de la Saint-Contenaire. Even a French engine shouldn't make noises like that, muttered Lefranc as he pulled himself out of the car. He looked as relieved as a passenger who'd just survived a flight on an Aeroflot Tupolev 154. We waited in the bushes along the edge of the park, just across the street from the Canadian mission. Violet was dressed in tight black yoga pants, Doc Martens, a black bomber jacket, and a black beret. In her hand, she had the kind of headlamp that avid cross-country skiers wear in Gatineau Park. A houndstooth sport coat, she whispered accusingly, 
to me as we watched to see if there was any movement in the mission. It's half black, I pointed out, like camouflage. If anyone spots us, she replied, maybe they'll get disoriented and fall down the stairs. In the bushes behind us, the secret nightlife of Brussels was getting underway. Scattered at our feet in the bushes were beer bottles, soiled condoms, and old copies of The Economist. A man appeared out of the darkness behind us. He was about to say something when he spotted Violet. He retreated into the darkness. Was that the head of the climate change desk at the commission? hissed Camille. Shh, Violet replied. It's time. Camille, you stay here. Pin McGregor on his Blackberry if anyone comes in after us. Violet checked her gear. Headlamp, notepad, and Blackberry if we needed to take photos. Camille handed notepads, pencils, and flashlights to Lefranc and me. Lefranc got a sleek mini flashlight. Mine said, Les Aventures de Tintin on the side. Camille shrugged apologetically. We walked across the street. When you're out in the open, the best thing to do is act like you're supposed to be there. I walked briskly up to the door and slid the key I had failed to return into the lock. It turned, and I held the door for Lefranc and Violet. In the elevator, Violet asked if they would have changed the codes on the mission's floor. Did they ever change the codes when you were in the Foreign Service? I asked. It was late, but I was nonetheless nervous that someone would come into the mission. I turned my phone's ringer off. It would be a bad time to get a wrong number if someone else did show up. I pressed Tintin's nose, and my flashlight came on. I moved quickly to the outer door and punched in the code. It was unchanged. I opened the door to where the Belgian staff sat, then moved to the secure area. The code for that door was also unchanged, as was the code for the alarm. I quickly deactivated it. Lefranc and Violet moved swiftly past me to the rooms they'd been assigned. My first job was to check the fax machines and get a printout of all the incoming and outgoing numbers in their memories. This only took me a moment since I'd done it many times before. It stops Dunscap from playing the old Your fax must have gone to a wrong number ploy. It suddenly occurred to me that I should do the same to the fax machine in the Embassy to Belgium on the floor below. I remembered when the Premier's office in Saskatoon received a faxed coupon for sex from my division's fax machine. We didn't find out for months that it was the secretary of the division down the hall faxing embarrassing love notes to her boyfriend's similar fax number in Saskatchewan, using our fax machine to avoid questions. I slipped down the back stairs, opened the door to Canada's least important embassy, and secured the printout. Back upstairs, I flipped through the recently dialed numbers on the phones in Kennedy's office, Beto's office, and the conference room. Lefranc was convinced this would yield useful clues, although I was skeptical. Holding Tintin in my mouth, I went through the desk in the office Beto was using. He took the clean desk wheel seriously, and if his desk hadn't been free of dust, I wouldn't even have known the office was occupied. Kennedy's desk wasn't much more productive. There was a pile of business cards, but the only thing of note was the number of non-government cards. The company names on the cards reminded me of the kind of people I saw in the lobby of the Imperatrice. I wondered where she met them all. It certainly wasn't because of her work. My closest encounter with investment bankers had been when I served with an officer whose brother was a lawyer at a big firm in the city of London. The villains at one of the banks occasionally needed boilerplate legal work done for bond issues. Since all the law firms could do it, they chose among them by sending them lists of trivia questions. The law firm that answered them correctly first got the work. Our colleague used to call us into his office where we would cluster around the speakerphone, telling his brother which daughter ran away in Pride and Prejudice, or who was the last Roman emperor. Get moving, hissed Violet from the door. I put the cards back on Kennedy's desk, put my hand over the flashlight, and ran down the hall to the ambassador's secretary's desk. On the way, however, I passed Julian's office. It suddenly occurred to me I should check his office, too. I dashed in and quickly wrote down all the phone numbers in his phone's redial memory. Then I moved to his safe. 
I had to open it to get some Candu Canada files after he'd been killed. The combination was easy to remember. 6 The date Hitler invaded Russia. Clamping Tintin in my teeth again, I rifled through the files in the top three drawers. It all looked so sadly banal. I pulled open the bottom drawer, which was filled with duty-free liquor receipts and expense claims. I was about to close the drawer when a thin beige folder caught my eye. It was stuffed down the front of the file drawer instead of being in the green hanging folders. I pulled it out. The tab for the file name said XX. My pulse accelerated. Julian had been reading Bodyguard of Lies about the Allied deception campaign against the Germans on my recommendation. XX was the symbol for the Double Cross Committee that coordinated running double agents. I opened the file. There was only one official document. It had the C5 tag on top from our secure message system and was classified. I immediately recognized it as the secret tell that had been leaked to the papers. There was only one other sheet of paper, which was in Julian's handwriting. The first line had a date and said, Call with PMO. Prime directive is access for Canadian oil to Antwerp terminal, plus no ultra-high carbon designation. Jackpot, I whispered to myself. Making sure there were no other gems in the drawer, I closed the safe and stuffed the file into my bag. Then I stepped out of Julian's office and zipped down the hall to the ambassador's secretary's desk. Lucille was covering the job, and I had high hopes of security lapses. Sure enough, there were yellow sticky notes stuck all around the computer screen. The most interesting one said, Dinner, 6, Private Room, Rendafrique, Thursday, 8 p.m., Reservation under Tim Horton, and had the initials for Beto, Ravinsky, and Kennedy on it. I made a note and began looking for passwords and combinations. As a temporary replacement, Lucille would have had a hard time remembering the passwords and combinations to the computers and safes, and they were probably hidden somewhere nearby. I crawled on the floor and examined several decades' worth of chewing gum on the bottom of the desk. I flipped through the notebooks in the drawers, looked behind the cat photos, and looked at the bottom of the scotch tape holder and tissue box. I looked around and tried to think like Lucille. She was wilier than the average Foreign Service officer. I reached into the tissue box and pulled out the brick of folded tissues. Sure enough, there was a combination written on the bottom, but there were no passwords for the computers. I memorized the combination. Violet snapped a photo with her Blackberry, and I pushed the tissue back into the box. LaFranc and Violet joined me in the ambassador's office as I dialed the combination. It clicked satisfyingly, and I opened the door. I opened the file cabinet within and pulled out the files we were looking for. I grabbed the outgoing diary for the previous month and any messages from our secure C5 system. I also grabbed files on CanDo Canada or WestCan, and, for good measure, the ambassador's expense claims. LaFranc took them and was about to head for the photocopying room when we heard a heavy door slam. The room went black as Violet clicked off the flashlight. She and LaFranc jumped into the closet and closed the door. I closed the doors as quietly as I could. There was giggling in the hallway coming my way. I closed the safe door, twirled the numbers, and dashed for the closet. Too small! Mouth Violet. She pointed me at the ambassador's desk. The voices in the hallway were getting closer. I heard the clink of glass. Some idiot forgot the alarm again! tittered a woman's voice. I dived under the desk, squirming past the chair and pushing myself as far as I could into the cavity where the ambassador's feet went. The door to the office banged open loudly. I heard the sound of two glasses and a bottle being put on the side table, then the pop of a cork and something fizzy being poured. My eyes adjusted to the darkness, and I could see some shadows cast by the streetlights moving against the wall. The voices whispered inaudibly, and glasses clinked. The desk creaked as someone leaned against it. I saw a woman's hand release a champagne coupe, which fell noiselessly onto the thick carpet. I didn't come here to drink, she said coyly. 
The man's shadow moved towards the desk. Would you like to meet his excellency, mademoiselle? replied the man. There was a zip, and the woman cackled lewdly. Nice to meet you, your excellency. The man moaned softly. That's a firm handshake, he replied. Shoot me now, I thought to myself. It was Lucille and Ambassador Glostrom. The desk shuddered as they embraced. I heard more zips and snaps and saw Lucille's shoes land on the carpet as she kicked them off. Glostrom's shirt flew onto the bust of Terry Fox behind his chair. The ambassador's phone fell onto the carpet. I saw the globe hit the floor and roll into the corner. Soon the ambassador was puffing like he was about to have a heart attack, and Lucille was moaning in Quebec joie. The closet door opened an inch. I could see Violet, who was on her knees. She was signaling something. She was pointing frantically at her phone and then at me. I tried to read her lips. Record it, she was saying silently, pointing at her phone. I pulled the phone out of my pocket. Someone's coming, said a pin message from Camille, resent six times. I realized how stupid it had been to turn the phone's sound off. I fiddled with the buttons. There had to be a voice recorder button somewhere. I saw one marked video, pressed it, and held the phone up. Violet was still signaling. Closer, she mouthed silently. I pushed the phone out of the chair cavity and held it a few inches higher. The desk was shaking, and dust floated down onto my face from underneath. Glostrom was moaning loudly, and Lucille's arms were flailing violently. She accidentally delivered a karate chop to my wrist that almost sent the phone flying. Finally, the desk shuddered violently. Lucille shrieked, and Glostrom gasped like his heart had burst. I pulled the phone back into the chair cavity and tried not to throw up. That concludes episode 20 of The Tarsan's Diplomat. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed it, be sure to tell a friend, or even better, leave a review on iTunes or Amazon.ca. And please join us again next week, when episode 21 will be on iTunes, Stitcher, and all your favorite podcast platforms. <laughs>